It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with Jesus Revolution director Brent McCorkle. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight introduced himself to the broader world with the release of his debut film, Unconditional, starring Lynn Collins and Michael Ely, and now brings his talent and skill once again as co-director on the hotly anticipated feature film, Jesus Revolution, starring Kelsey Grammer and Jonathan Rumi. Here to chat about the film and his work is none other than Brent McCorkle. Brent, welcome to the show. It's so good to be on with you, man. Thanks for having me on. So I'd like to uh, learn a little bit about your biography. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you there? Well, I was the pastor's kid. I grew up uh, mainly in Texas. I spent a brief time in Missouri and I loved the snow there. But um, but yeah, my dad wanted to uh, start a church from scratch in Texas. So we left everything that we knew and loved behind in Missouri. And when I was 10, we moved to Texas and started a church with just the four of us, me, my brother, my mom, and my dad. And, um, you know, it was really cool to see what my dad did. He taught me how to chase big dreams. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I got to ride along on with his big dream and, uh, it turned out really good, man. He's, he's a very beloved pastor and a lot of people still call him pastor after he's been retired uh, from from that for decades. And so, so yeah, it's been really cool. And so uh, I was a creative kid, a little bit adrift, but growing up in the church, it was really cool because they really, a lot of churches really nurture creatives. They really nurture artists. And so I, I was given a safe place to learn how to play piano and sing and be pretty terrible at it to start out with. And then over time, you know, I got better and, um, acted in some dramas, sang in some musicals. And I really, I don't know if you're familiar with any Malcolm Gladwell work, but he, he says, if you, if you want to get good at anything, practice with effort and intensity for 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. Yeah. From there, I, um, I, I got married. I had kids. I, I, um, got into a career and late in life, again, this kind of a drift artist. I didn't realize how much of an artist I was, but after I switched majors five times, you know, and was married, I realized I wanted to be a filmmaker. I, I'd always loved movies since I was a kid. And so I went to to college here in the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area, took some film classes and started making a bunch of short films. And some producers saw me. I'd made about 50 short films at, at that point. So some producers saw one of my shorts in a film festival and they invited me to to be their filmmaker for the movie that you you said at the top unconditional so i moved my whole family similar to my dad moved my whole family to nashville and uh made that movie and that was my first feature and, and from there i i um met john and andy and have had multiple multiple wonderful collaborations with those guys and jesus rev i think being by far the the greatest one so far uh, were there films or certain experiences that made you decide you wanted to pursue cinema as a career? I had an, an awesome experience when I was younger. I tell this story a lot, uh, but uh, my dad, you know, came home with a bootleg. He didn't even know it was a bootleg. It was just given to him by a friend of a friend, but it was a bootleg of Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you're an 80s kid, you'll recall that both of those movies took forever to get to VHS. And so I, <laughs> I was one of maybe three kids in America that had those movies on tape. Uh, and my brother and I wore that VHS tape out. We stopped counting when we watched them 40 times each. And wow. uh, 
and I've, I've probably seen Raiders and Empire now 60, 60, maybe 80 times. I just, I love those movies so much. And um, what I was watching though, and marinating on and watching it over and over again, were two nearly perfect films. And so I, I think, I think it set the bar high in my brain with me not even knowing it, but yeah, definitely that was the pilot light lighting, you know, igniting. That was, that was definitely the, the ignition point for me was watching those two movies over and over again as a kid. What was the first Christian movie you ever saw? I mean, did you get lucky with something like Ben-Hur, The Ten Commandments, or maybe not so much with Bible Man, <laughs> like my producer's generation? Yes. Uh, I saw Ben-Hur as a kid, and it blew me away. It blew me away. It it in, it burned itself into my brain. Uh, what a beautiful movie. And it's so great that you would invoke Ben-Hur. Um, and I... And I actually, I actually brought up Ben Hur at a symposium, like a conference, and I never got invited back. But but it was all these people going, "I want to make you know the greatest Christian films ever," and you know I wanted da da da. And I was like, "Well, how much time have you put into it?" Well, you know nothing. I was like, "You need to go watch Ben Hur, and see what's possible because what you're talking about without putting any time into it, it's going to be terrible." But like Ben Hur, man, like that is Hollywood bringing all of its forces to bear on a faith based concept. And it is that movie is amazing. I mean, it just stands up. It holds up to the test of time and some of the greatest action sequences, even when they tried to redo it. Like you just can't get back there. It's just the most amazing. Some of the most amazing, you know, Hollywood at the height of its power cinema ever made. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but uh, when you look at films like this, when you look at um, uh, Jonathan Rumi's other project, The Chosen, when you look at uh, there's uh, there seems to be I don't want to call it a movement, um, but there there and you've got uh, studios like Lionsgate that normally you wouldn't have studios that would get behind uh, faith based you know, productions. And do you see that there's maybe being a change and maybe a little bit of the film culture, or are they just recognizing now that there is a profit center in things like this that they didn't recognize before. So they're now willing to make the investment. It's both. It's both simultaneously. So what you have is some, the film kids that are slowly growing up and like, I just turned 50, but over, over decades of time, you, you beat yourself up, you whip yourself. You want to be better and better and better at every at every pass. So the people that have stayed in faith that actually care about the quality that actually love Hollywood's bar, those people were, were continuing to get better. You know, so like if you even look at my movies, like they've continued to improve because I'm working actively to do that. That's one thing I applaud about John and Andy and Dallas Jenkins. Uh, we have this high benchmark of quality in our value system, whereas a lot of Christian filmmakers don't. And that, that breaks my heart, honestly. I think if you're going to attach Jesus to something or God, you know, it better, it better rock, you know, it better like destroy <laughs> out there. Like it better be excellent. So other than your own film, Unconditional, what was the first movie of the modern faith-based film era that made you go, okay, this is different. This is actually a good film on its own merits. Yes. Oh, man. Um, can I ask you some questions? You know, I guess I was like, what would you for me? It's it's always so dicey to get into this stuff because I have a different take on faith films. So I think there's they're like faith films that are designed to entertain Christians. And then there are films that just grapple with faith and they're they're made for the mainstream, but they have a faith component. So I guess in your mind, which of those? Well, the interesting thing is, is I I had the opportunity to get uh, to, to pre-screen 
Jesus Revolution. My I I went into that theater thinking it was going to be the latter, thinking that it was going to be a story that was on its own merits that might have a faith based undertone. And I came out. Let's put it this way. It snuck up on me. I, I came out going, you know, oh, wow, this has a much stronger faith component to it. It's still here. It stood on its own merits, but it also still, I mean, there were three times in the movie where I shed tears. Yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, and my wife, she shed tears throughout it. Um, she was touched very much by it. So, so it's interesting because I, I see how you're saying there's di this dichotomy between the two. I think, I think your present movie kind of, I think blended it well. Ah oh, man, that makes me so happy. So uh, the reason why I say that is, <clears throat> there are movies uh, that I that are so faith affirming to me, but so, are offensive to others because like, well, that's not Christian entertainment. That's that that doesn't affirm my faith. But like, so uh, M Night Shyamalan uh, signs. I'm very moved by the faith story in that. Uh, there's a little indie movie that Ryan Gosling did called Lars and the Real Girl, where he's mentally ill and the community comes around him and tries to help him, and they actually have the thematic discussion of the film takes place in a church and literally the priest asks, well, what would Jesus do? And then they just get around this guy and start loving him. And that's just a mainstream indie movie. So there are movies like that, that I really applaud because I think it's, it's hard maybe in Hollywood to, to Brit, to do a faith, uh, um, you know, a faith adjacent uh, storyline. Um, and then, but then you have like on, on the on other side of the spectrum, you have films that are, made for the church right and so so what's interesting with john and i uh is we're different and my it was really cool directing this because we made the same movie we were totally on the same page but i think our hearts are go out to two different audiences and so i think you i think we might have threaded the needle on this one like my stuff i just i want it to go out to the mainstream i want the atheists to watch it and cry and i i want the hardcore entrenched evangelicals you know to watch it cry and everybody in between because i do think there are universal themes and i think god's love is trying to get to us in a myriad of different ways and i don't think that necessarily always has to be through preaching uh, but at the same time john really has a heart for this underserved entertainment market which is the christians because they have been they have been underserved from hollywood let's be honest you know and i think that might be changing and and um and I really hope that it is. But together, I think we threaded this needle, perhaps. What led to your original team up with the Irwins uh, for, like, I can only imagine? How did that come about? Yeah, uh, we all had a mutual respect for each other. Um, we both had ties. We all had ties to Nashville. They had just done their first movie. They came out the same year that Unconditional did. And Andy called me up one day. He got, a, got my number from somebody. And he said, hey, man. Um, I really liked your movie. I saw it. And I really appreciate it. I'd love to work with you in the future. And it was just like kind of a, it was a call that blew me away because his, their movie did a lot better than mine, but, um, but he's like, yeah, in the future, I'm going to call you. I said, okay, cool. So um, they went to Sony and did mom's night out and then Woodlawn came around and there was going to be so much action in that and so much football that he knew he wanted a second editor. And he was like me. He just edited all of his own stuff by himself. And that can wear you out, man. So he's like, bro, I need a, I need a co-pilot on this. And so he called me. I read the script. I loved it. 
started doing Woodlawn uh, with him. I ended up getting to do some music and story consulting on it and, uh, and editing it with Andy. And it was just, it was awesome. I, I loved that experience. And, uh, and we segued right into multiple other projects. I can only imagine they really let me wear a lot of hats on that. And, uh, that's where I started telling everybody I was the adopted, uh, Irwin brother, you know, I was the third <laughs> Irwin brother. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, we've, we've collaborated on five or six things now. Um, I feel very fortunate. John, John was really passionate about Jesus revolution and he's really passionate about his next film that he's working on, um, called fearless, which is, a, a Navy seal movie, a very amazing book. Um, so what happened was John still wanted to collaborate with somebody. So I got the invite to, to be the co on this and I brought my thing to it. John brought his thing to it and we had the most amazing cast and crew on this and everybody brought their thing to it and so it's definitely a movie that was raised by a village and we just had some amazing amazing quality people uh but yeah the, to go back to your question we met out of like a mutual affinity and respect because we're like these boys in the south like trying to make life affirming you know redemptive um uplifting content and uh and we had our first feature films come out you know the same year so it, that's that's how we found each other really when was the idea or script for Jesus Revolution first brought to your attention? That's a great question. Um, we were working on Woodlawn. Woodlawn takes place in a similar time. Uh, it's a film about a school that had been recently desegregated and the Jesus movement had started sweeping the country and this chaplain goes in and then he's basically like, hey guys, you need to put aside your differences. It's about Jesus and it's about the love of God. You guys need to like start loving each other. And, and they do. They kind of give into this thing and they get they get kind of washed away in the in the Jesus movement. Well, in all of that, John was doing research as, as any good director would and he stumbled across this crazy psychedelic Jesus cover of Time Magazine in 1971 and it just said Jesus Revolution and he got really intrigued by it started trying to hunt the article down and there there was no digital archive of that article so he ends up buying the collector's edition time magazine off ebay for 150 dollars <laughs> so but he cracks like a good investment it. now oh yeah that's yeah that you know that's that's 150 bucks we would put down easy uh but he cracks the thing open and it's 10 pages of just amazing cinema and no one's covered this period well in cinema ever uh you know as far as a, a feature a narrative feature to my knowledge at least um and so he comes in the next morning with that magazine and i remember it sat on his desk for months but he's like guys we got to do this and, you know we finished imagining him and you know we got out the door and lionsgate came on as a partner and he was like please can we do this next and they're like man you know the music biopic we, we want to keep going with that and so you know they went on did i still believe in everything and that was great so that was the first time it was delayed then they wrote the script and it was greenlit and everything and COVID shut it COVID. down the second time. Well, then the third time it wanted to mount up, you know, John and Andy were interested in other projects. And so I got invited to come on. And so seven years later and our third mount up for this, we actually made it and it's, you know, coming out in theaters 2023. And, um, and so, yeah, it's been a circuitous path to get it to the theater, but you hear that a lot from filmmakers, like stuff yeah. burns down and, there's a little bit of embers and it revives and burns down again. And, you know, 10 years later, five years later, whatever it is, it, 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 you know, ultimately gets made. So that's, that was definitely the case here. It's been in a gestational period for 
almost a decade. So it's it's very uh, humbling, but also uh, exciting to see something that's cooked this long, you know, finally get served as a meal. You know? What did you know about the Jesus movement before you read the script? Because ironically, I was married in 2003 at a cavalry chapel myself, but I was unaware of its history. Yeah, I I was really educated on it when I started doing research. So when John found that article and we had some downtime, I started doing a ton of research for it. And I found just some beautiful scenes and I would chunk those away. And I ended up turning in like a small phone book dossier of like the stories and the anecdotes and the different ways, places we could go with it. Uh, so I really was educated and um, entrenched in all of the Jesus movement stuff, Jesus culture, Jesus people. For me, it was newfound treasure. I, I didn't really know that much about it. And it, it actually taught me things about my upbringing that I just took for granted or didn't really understand where it was all coming from. So even, you know, things I saw in Sunday school or like bumper stickers that people had on their car and stuff like that, but it was all from the Jesus movement. I was born in 1973. So, you know, as the Jesus movement kind of had its heyday in 71, 72, I was born that next year. And uh, there was still, you know, a trickle effect all through the 70s uh, because of the Jesus movement. To answer your question, it was definitely getting pulled into the research for the, for this movie. And it really was kind of a unique time in American history. You know, was there anything particularly crazy that you learned about the whole era while working on the film? Yeah, there was just such a despondency pretty much across the the world. You know, the there were political assassinations, JFK, Bobby, you know, Martin Luther King, the the epitome and the height of the civil rights movement, which continues today. You had our own state troopers gun down uh, American students on American soil. Uh, the Cold War, you know, the, the countercultural movement, all the kids dropping out uh, and just running away. I mean, it was a dark, dark time. It was divided. People were yelling at each other. And um, quite frankly, you know, people thought the world was going to end and that it was all going to be over. And so, so yeah, man, it was a, it was a, a wild time to drop into and think what it would be like. I think my mind took me back to what would it feel like if my president got assassinated? Like that, that just had to be some sort of like the most immense psychic trauma to a nation that, that could really happen. Um, so I, you know, I, tried to dwell on that and think about what that would feel like and all the uncertainty. Um, but the interesting thing about it is I think we find ourselves in a, uh, a similar place with the divisiveness and how divided our country is. And everybody would rather scream at each other in all caps on Facebook than actually sit down and have a, uh, a civil conversation and agree to disagree. You'd rather, like, it seems like it's gotten easy. And I'm talking about outside the church, but also inside the church, maybe inside the church even more, but it's got a lot easier to hate your enemy than it is to like sit down and have a conversation with somebody. Well, that that's interesting oh. because there seems to be a parallel with what you just said with certain scenes within the movie when the so-called hippies started to come into the church and the, for lack of a better way of putting it, church elders who were more conservative 
were none too pleased with these people with bare feet coming in and they were more concerned about their carpets getting, you know, saving their carpets than saving their souls. Yes, man. Um, I guess for me, and this, these words are kind of blistering and they're blistering to my heart too. And they should be, but there's, there's your tradition and there's your, your ideologies uh, politically or otherwise. And then there's what Jesus did. And Jesus hacked the traditionalists and the moralists of his time. And if he had just been a typical rabbi and just taught in synagogues and just stayed inside the synagogues and taught, taught from the scripture, you would never know his name. There would not be a religion built around him. The whole idea of, of what he was trying to show you was they were hurting people out in the world. Get outside the church walls and go be with the people and love on everybody. He hung with the marginalized groups. He was criticized for them. He wasn't even culturally, he wasn't even supposed to talk to some of those people, but he did, you know? And so I don't know, man, I just find his life so inspiring and beautiful to me and, and loving. And he went out of his way to love and care and meet people's needs. And um, it seemed like the only time he would ever like raise his voice or get really frustrated was, was when tradition was getting in the way of actually loving God and following God and loving people. And so so yeah, man, that, that's a little bit of my, uh, the, the drum that I bang, uh, uh, you know, I get, get me, get my dad's DNA coming up in me. I'll start preaching a little bit, but, um, that's, that's funny. Well, I don't necessarily disagree because in every faith and in every, um, uh, there, there's, there's always going to be some group that kind of is our modern day, uh, group of Pharisees. Yes, yes, we we did it and we gently did it, but we uh you know there were preachers at the time that were just so adamant against uh the Jesus movement. They thought it was wrong. Um and I just I don't get it, man. I don't get it. Like everybody is made in God's image. Everybody's a child of God. Everybody is worthy of love. And Jesus said, even if you do choose to have political enemies, um in this country and you, you actually view your neighbor who's flying whatever flag you don't fly in your yard. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, if you view them as your enemy, uh, Jesus actually has a message for you too. Like we're, we're to love our enemies. And so, so until we get back to that, you know, I think we're going to continue to be spun out as a culture and, and I'm talking to, to culture at large. I don't, I don't want to pick on the church. I think it's pervasive and it's, it's really uh, a virus that's infiltrated our entire culture, you know, and I, I hope when people go see our movie, they're just going to feel that this was crafted with so much love and it's about a conversation and it's more like, come to the table and let's talk. It's invitational and it's, it's very loving. And, and for me, I really feel the spirit move in that arena of like what we were trying to build as opposed to something that continues to divide. Did you guys have any hesitation in casting Jonathan Rumi as Lonnie Frisbee, considering Jonathan's already associated with Jesus due to his concurrent portrayal of, of Christ in the chosen? No, I, I think quite the opposite. For for me, at least, I thought, "Whoa, this is going to be crazy" because it's such a um, it's such a radical departure. It's going to be like a different voice, a different posture. Uh, you know, uh, maybe the length of the hair I can see. But what's really funny is people thought that we were writing uh, like a chosen joke when he gets up. He gets up at one point and he says, "People say I'm trying to look like Jesus." Yes, I can't think of anybody else I'd rather, I'd look, rather like. look like. People, yes. 
people thought we wrote that maybe as like an inside baseball chosen joke. No, Lonnie actually said that in an interview, you know, so mm-hmm. it's interesting. Uh, you know, he's a kid, uh, you know, he's a street preacher trying to uh, emulate Jesus as much as he can. And he would wear robes and deerskin capes and, you know, he would do all that stuff. And so I don't know, man, I think, I think he did it. Um, I, I will say though, I will say for the rabid chosen fans out there, it probably takes them a couple scenes. <laughs> yeah. They're like throw down the movies. Like why is Jesus talking? Like he's from the Northeast. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think to your point, you know, um, maybe I made peace with it, you know, faster than I should have, but I, <laughs> I don't know. To me, I knew he was going to come in with something completely different. He's like one of the most fantastic actors I've ever had a chance to work with. So I was never worried. Um, that he couldn't do it or wouldn't give us enough um, dimensionality away from the Jesus character. Uh, But at the same time, like for the people that know him and see him in that role and like just binge the chosen over and over because it's such a great feeling film and he just portrayed Jesus is so warm and kind and friendly and loving. And I don't know, it's so beautiful what he does. So I can understand a bunch of people being tripped up by him, you know, going a different way. And, um, and at times acting badly, uh, you know, as a human. Um, so I, I'm sure, I, I'm sure that would be an interesting thing to unpack with some rabid chosen fans. But from my standpoint, from my vantage point, just as a filmmaker, I think it's just a wonderful departure. And you, you look at them, you're like, whoa, this dude's got range, you know? Um, so yeah. How did Kelsey Grammer first become involved with the film? Yeah, man, that's another great, great story. Uh, Kelsey was John Irwin's number one pick, and uh, I, I was, I was all about it too. And and it turns out Kelsey was really on this deep spiritual quest. He is, he was on a retreat with some of his friends from the film community and they or on this retreat they were lamenting the fact that a lot of the stuff that they had done in their in their film careers were just was just for money they wished that more of their body of work had contained something of spiritual or social or cultural significance and they made a bit of like a blood oath there that night they said from going forward as much as we can sometimes you got to just take a job and pay the bills we get it but it's going forward as much as we can let's do something of spiritual significance so they go home kelsey goes to sleep wakes up the next morning and the jesus revolution script was in his inbox and he opened it up that morning read it all the way through without stopping (laughs) clicked out of it called his agent and said i don't care about the money find out what the schedule is i'm in i'm doing this and so he really took that as a sign and in his mind it was almost like they put up a prayer that weekend like will you God, we please send us stuff that that would allow us to be more spiritually significant in the work that we take on. So for him, it was a bit of an answer to a prayer and to inherit him in the time of his life where he's at right now, which is this deep, deep spiritual peace and presence that he's carrying. I mean, dude, I, I was so drawn to him. Like he's had a lot worse stuff happen to him in his life than me. He has walked a very deep valley, man. And he has more peace than me <laughs> on a daily basis. And I found myself like seeking him out in between takes and like, Hey man, you know, tell me about your faith and like, and tell me about the stuff that happened to you and like how you were able to forgive this and let it go. And man, dude, it, I would go to church with him, man, just in tears. I, it, he's a powerful human being, man. And, um, 
and just where he's at right now, he gave that to the world. He just opened up his heart and said, I'm going to, where I'm at right now, I'm fully vulnerable. I'm fully here. I'm fully authentic. I'm going to put everything that I'm feeling and going through in my life into this role. And it's the greatest thing he's ever done. Um, I, I, I thought I heard that his wife had said that she thought this was his best work. Yeah. Someone sent me, uh, that's very true. And someone sent me an NPR podcast, film podcast today, and they said it like, this is the greatest thing he's ever done. And I just, I think it's undeniably so. It's got to be kind of surreal too, also to see Kelsey Grammer openly tearing up in interviews as he discusses his role in working on this film. Yeah. It's because of where he's at spiritually. And uh, I mean, I wish crowds of people get around him and sit and listen to him because your heart would explode with love and peace. You would feel the spirit. I mean, he's just, um, he's, he's being led by gently by the hand through some beautiful <laughs> spiritual pastures right now. And like, and he's sharing with everybody and uh, man, it's, it was, it's some, sometimes man, you know, directors, they get really arrogant and they take all the credit for everything even the stuff they didn't do and i just find that such a foolish it's a fool's errand because number one it takes hundreds of people to make a movie it's like that that director arrogantly taking all the credit for their movie that's like them being on a pirate ship with no crew and and thinking they can sail somewhere anywhere you can't if it's a 400 man ship i'm sorry you're not going anywhere and so i think for me especially with kelsey just feeling like i was getting to ride along in this beautiful experience and not take credit for any of it. Just it, everything aligned and it just felt really guided. And I'm so grateful that he said, yes, this movie, this movie would not be the same without all of these casts uh, saying yes. And, you know, very much so the case with Kelsey. Both Jonathan and Kelsey portray real life people. Um, how much research did you have did, that you do yourself uh, on the Jesus movement uh, to understand these real life characters before you had to arrive on the set the first day? Oh, I did a ton of research. Like I said, I, I read uh, a handful of books. I watched some documentaries. There's a really interesting uh, documentary uh, called Lonnie Frisbee the life of a hippie street preacher, I think. Uh, and it's just, it's like a really uh, bare bones documentary, but I found it very compelling. And I think they actually interviewed uh, Chuck's son for it. Um, so I really liked that documentary. I read a book called God's Forever Family and it was very academic and it had a lot of uh, research and like polls uh, and things of like, what, what were you reading at the time? Or like, what were your favorite musicians? What were your favorite bands? What were your favorite movies? And I was, you know, they were interviewing the Jesus people of the time. And so I found that to be a very informative book. Um, and then the rest of it was watching old archives. I would find like Chuck preaching or Lonnie preaching or when they would get on TV shows or when they got on Catherine Coleman. And we definitely wanted to do a shout out to the real Catherine Coleman, uh, you know, for having them on on her show, which she did. And so we recreated a lot of that in a cinematic way. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of research, man. Uh, a lot of research, not just into the Jesus movement, but into the time period. I just there was a, a crazy level of detail that went into crafting this film to make it feel like you were actually in 1969. So, so yeah, man, a lot of love uh, from a ton of great minds, I think that, that went into this and gave it the, all the polish and the detail and the authenticity that, that we needed. 
And, and and obviously, you know, the one of the most fascinating, you know, characters who who is a real life person in the movie is that of Lonnie Frisbee, who you've mentioned. And I've read accounts of people who knew him, and some of them literally said that being with him was like being with one of the apostles. Did you hear any stories like that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. I've heard crazy stories about him. Obviously, like, you know, legends build up around uh, bigger than life personalities. But I mean, <laughs> I heard one story, and again, I don't know if it's true, but um, there was a guy, he was down and out, he's about to lose everything. And uh, he went underneath this oak tree and asked God a question. And he was like, I just, God, I just need to know yes or no. I need to know yes or no tomorrow or like my life's going to explode. And then, and uh, he saw Lonnie, I think that next day and, and Lonnie just looks at him. He goes, yeah, you were asking God something underneath an oak tree yesterday. And God says, yes. And you know? the guy just like fell on the ground and like lost his mind, you know? So he definitely was a steer for sure. I definitely think he had, had a, definitely strong spiritual gifts and um and uh, i think um he was a very complex complicated human being but me and john and jonathan especially we were grieved by the fact that he was actually written out of church history just because of some of his moral failings and some of the struggles that he had or what some would perceive to be moral failings or what others would not and so uh, the the big thing we wanted to do was bring him into the story and try to do uh, a character justice, you know, based on him being involved and really reinstantiate him into the the central narrative, which you know people have tried to kind of wipe him out of over the over the uh, the decades. Well, you did. Did you also have access to Greg Laurie because Greg's still alive, right? So, and he's got to have stories, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We we patterned. We patterned uh, the overwhelming majority of the movie off Greg's anecdotes and stories um, and, you know, his interactions and what he saw of Chuck and Lonnie. Because, you know, we got the we you know, we had close access to Greg and John and Erwin uh, and Greg Laurie, our, our dear friends. And so I mean, we sat I remember sitting with them for, I don't know, two 10 hour days, I think, and just getting the whole data drop of everything that happened and so much of their interviews and what Greg ultimately read, uh, wrote into the book that he did with Ellen Vaughn made it into the film. So definitely Greg's accounts of things and his book and those interviews are the spine of our story for sure. It's my understanding you guys fought hard to gain access to the real Pirate's Cove, basically to recreate the baptisms that happened there for this film. What was that process like? And what was the atmosphere like shooting there? Well, John says for him, it's the most electric spiritual day of his career. Um, it was really important for us, I think, to go back to that space where it really happened. There was a lot of talk of shooting at different places. And I had been to Pirates Cove multiple times. John's been there more than me. And, and he and I were, were pretty adamant that it needed to go back there. And it was expensive. <laughs> it was very expensive. And, uh, you know. Is, is that because it was tough to shoot? Because, I mean, you'd have to... Because to do the scenes in the water, you'd have to be concerned about electrical. I, I think I saw some behind the scenes stuff where you guys had to put stuff on like floats or air mattresses or stuff in yeah. order to. Yeah, the the bigger issue was um, we had a techno crane that we wanted to bring in. Uh, th those things weighed like 
the weight of like 10 cars, you know, so it, it, it's crazy. And then all the gear for the beach had to be hand carried up over rocks. All the extras had to walk up and over these rocks. We had to hire an entire stunt team just to stand around and make sure that nobody fell or tripped. So you have like almost like a fire brigade of guys like saying, hey, walk this way, walk that way, step up this rock. And, you know, guys carrying hundreds of pounds of gear of stuff. Um, in addition to that, the state of California will not let you close any of their beaches. So, uh, you know, to do a film, you really want to be able to close things down. So if you listen really closely, I think we scrubbed most of it out. But I mean, there were children yelling. I mean, right outside of the shots, there's like kids jumping around in their floaties, you know, in the water and parents just trying to like, I felt a little bit bad. because Like they're trying to have like their nice calm time. Like, film sets are very disruptive. We're very loud and take over everything. And so, um, so yeah, we did not, it's incredible to see what we did because uh, we did not have that beach. You know, like when you talk about having a location or we did not have that location, we couldn't, uh, if somebody really wanted to be adamant and like, stand out in the middle of that, you know, with their floaties, you know, they, they could have. So um, my understanding is, is that this scene filming the scene at Pirates Cove was so ultimately powerful for so many people that there were actually a handful of people who were baptized on film for the sake of being baptized on film, but they actually had a spiritual experience. That's absolutely true. I've got a funny story about that. Um, Jonathan is a, a hardcore Catholic um, and, you know, none of these actors are, are pastors or any kind of yeah. leadership in the church. And so Greg, it was so funny, Greg Laurie last minute took them to evangelical baptism boot camp, like took them out in the water. He's like, well, here's what you want to do. Just give them to bend their knees. And, you know, he's like walking through the whole thing that like, some of them might want to hold their nose. So hold them this way. Make sure you don't throw your back out when you pick, you know, it's like all this. He, he schooled these guys into how to actually baptize someone in the, in the evangelical tradition, which was amazing. They nailed, if you watch how they're baptizing people like, like Joel Courtney and Jonathan Rumi, they'd never done anything like that before. So when you see them, it's, it's like an actor, you know, in, in a, to a smaller degree, but it's like an actor who doesn't ride a horse and then they go to a horse riding school and they just look like a rock star, you know, and they look like a cowboy when they ride because they, they put the time in. So the, the baptism looked really good and they did like learn it from Greg and do really well. But in the midst of all that, we're running takes and sending people out in the water to be baptized. And we yelled cut and Jonathan came in, his eyes kind of wide. He's like, um, I don't know if this counts or not, but I, five people in a row just said they really wanted to be baptized. And so I said these words, you know, I said the words that I thought they, I needed to say, and I, I baptized them. And, uh, and Greg's like, yeah, man, you just, it's fine you know theologically you're good like you baptize those people and so anyway i mean you know jonathan Romy was holding um evangelical baptisms so anyway it was a pretty amazing pretty amazing story but it was definitely there was something in the air there was something electric in the air on those days for sure there are so many other scenes that stand out in my mind as well from from the movie was there a scene that turned out to be your favorite in the film uh, was it the baptism scene or was it something else I think for John, it was for me, it always was. Even when I discovered this scene in the research, I, I was crying. I couldn't believe it. I was so overwhelmed. And I, I remember on this day in at the office, I went to John and I said, here's the scene. If we get this right, we could murder all the other scenes and botch everything. But if this scene is right, it's a movie that will work. Wheelchair scene? It's the, no, it's the scene. Um, it's the scene where uh chuck fights to let the hippies in and he washes the feet of the hippies oh um, yes yeah that's a that's a tearful moment yeah it's it's just overwhelmingly powerful because 
he defeats the again he defeats the tradition of the church with the actions of Jesus. And, uh, it's overwhelming, man. It overwhelms me. I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it hundreds of times. I, I, uh, tears will fall down my face every time I watch it. It's like, it's what the world needs. And it's like, it's the element of Jesus that I want the young kids to see that they oftentimes don't see, uh, with the loudest voices in the church right now. So, you know, this film, like I mentioned earlier, is kind of releasing at a rather interesting time in history, and you kind of touched upon it a little bit. And now we, and we've got, you know, countless revivals taking place on college campuses across the country. Um, what do you think the movie right now, being released especially right now, has to say to our current cultural movement? Yeah, I think um, I think all of us are feeling a call and a draw back to love. Uh, the love of God. And I think uh, I've really been encouraged. Um, I actually read an article, uh, a Nashville woman went to Ashbury and, and they, um, they interviewed her and she was quick to say that these kids were purposefully disavowing any politics. And they're saying, this is about a move of the Holy spirit. And I think that's the next flex for the faith community. Like politics is not the answer guys. The answer is love, you know? And so I really do feel like, um, in Asbury and these other places, I think there's this stripping away of edifice and baggage and facade. And I think it's really like a strip down, stripping down of the cultural ramifications of like where, where, um, the church has gone recently. And, and when I say that, I don't really mean the church because I think that can be offensive sometimes. Like the, you, you can have different definitions of the church. The church is the body of Christ, but it, but there's also like an industrialized complex or like a cultural Christianity and that moves in different ways. So you had uh, Christians back in the day that had slaves, you know, and then you had Christians back in the day that were abolitionists. So there were two completely different cultures. And I always try to grapple with people on that. It's like, don't automatically assume the culture of your day is what, jesus wants because it may not be you know so if this is a return back to to the love of christ and the love of god uh, i think it's going to mean amazing things for our for our world for our planet for our country um if it's like a rejection of this this kind of like over politicized version of christianity i, I think it's really going to help us honestly so yes man if this is in tandem with that kind of move i i think I think we're getting ready to head into some beautiful, beautiful territory, man. Like, and let me, I will finish by saying this. Um, the word sanctuary has been such a beautiful word in the lexicon of Christianity. But if you ask kids today who are unchurched and, you know, where would you go? If the bottom drops out of your life, make a list of the 10 places you would go to feel safe. A lot of them would not have the church in the top 10 list. And I want that to change, man. Let's get back to sanctuary. Like, let's, can we have a safe space? Like, it's so beautiful when Chuck's preaching and he just says, you are all welcome here. We just like pan across those beautiful faces, you know, and they're the ones who are excited to be in church. And, you know, they're the ones bringing in all the peace and the love. And so it's more nuanced in our film, but the people that Chuck chose to let in, they changed him as much, you know, as his decision to let them in changed the situation. And so... I don't know, man. I just think we need a more generous, uh, we need a more generous faith and a more loving faith in our world. And, and when that, 
is happening. And I'm not saying that's not happening. It is, it's happening everywhere, but if there could be more of that, you know, and a cultural shift towards that, I think we could really see some beautiful times ahead. Now, Brent, before we wrap up, I'd like to give kind of just a quick plug for our local viewership. You guys shot much of the film here in Alabama and in Baldwin County within literally the TV viewing area of my show. Um, and of course, elsewhere. What brought you guys down to Southern Alabama? That's so cool to hear. I, I love telling everybody that we shot 85% of our movie in the Mobile, Alabama area. People's minds are blown. They're like, man, that was beautiful. That's incredible. You know, I mean, you guys have the most beautiful beaches. <laughs> I mean, I just, they're mind blowing. I, I grew up in Texas, you know, the Gulf is up, man, dude, Texas beaches do not hold a candle like to you guys. So uh, beautiful areas, you know, so the tax incentive uh, system in your state is very robust. It's very strong. And, um, and also the beaches are beautiful. You guys have palm trees and we found some amazing architecture that totally feels like Southern California. So for instance, I think people would automatically assume that we picked up the high school in LA. We shot our last week in LA. That high school is in Mobile, you know, and it's beautiful. And it looks, my my brother's a high school teacher. It looks just like the campus that he works on in Southern California. Um, wrapping up, do you guys have any, do you have any idea what your next film is going to be yet? What's the next story you want to tell? I personally don't know what mine is. Uh, I'm very excited and hopeful for the future. There's a lot of things swirling around that are very promising and cool, but I will say I'm I'm probably most excited about Andy's movie next, which is the Navy SEAL uh, yeah. movie. Um, he, it's called Fearless, and I think that's going to be uh, a really great film, and um, there's a lot of energy around it. And um, so, yeah, I'm excited to champion Andy and get behind him and be his cheerleader, just like he was for me on this film. And so uh, I'd say as far as Kingdom Story Company goes, it's going to be fearless for sure. And I don't know, man. I think I think we, I think we got some bright days ahead uh, for the space, and I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of it. Brent, thank you so much for joining us. Man, thank you for these questions. I've really enjoyed it. I, I love the in-depth questions. They're really thought out. And um, yeah, man, this movie, uh, I'm just, I'm so proud of it and so proud of the team. And so thank you for spending some time with me talking about it. Ladies and gentlemen, Brent McCorkle.